This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time and to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn more. In and through this series, I'm actually tagging this onto my series, Shadow Nation Rises, which is, I feel like you could call it even sort of cheating because I'm, it's not really a part of Deuteronomy, but I, I can force fit it in here. It's just that everything that is happening is a reflection of what has happened. What we are seeing even in our country this week, even though it didn't just start this week, this has been an ongoing process that we've been witnessing for not just even months, but years, is the exact same pattern of how evil encroaches in a nation, how lies disperse, and how justice is overthrown. You see the removal of strength. You see in Isaiah 3 the removal of manly strength, and that's the first sign of judgment in a nation. And what you've seen is the eradication of manliness in our culture. And uh, to the point where it is incorrect to be a strong man. What we saw in mid-March of this year with the rise of this thing known as COVID is we saw that what used to be normal uh, and healthy and strong, which is to be fearless in the midst of any danger, became now suddenly an impediment. If you are fearless, you are the problem because that means you're going to be a carrier, because you are so nonchalant about it. So it became hip and cool to be fearful. That's strange, guys. And so what we've seen is we've seen something known as lawlessness. We have seen fear, and we have seen deception make a move upon our country at a heightened level that is beyond anything I've ever witnessed. Because all of us have known they've been lurking in the shadows, and we've watched them at work for decades. So this isn't like a shock to any of us. It's the fact that they are brazen, standing out in the open, defying everything now. And to the point where, as the church, you're sort of staring back going, okay, God, what do I do? We feel very small, because the devil's whispering to us that we're very small. And if I speak right now, who actually is going to hear it? Who even cares? You might as well just shut up and accept it. And so this is a plot line, and that's where you see the name of this message being the plot twist. This is a plot line that has played out time and again throughout history. The Bible is going to capture this plot line over and over and over again, and that's the reason I want to bring it up now, is because in this shadow nation that we're going to see, the nation of Israel, you're going to see a pattern that is going to be set, and God's saying, take note of it. Look at this. This is my Holy Spirit that is carrying along the riders to show you something so as the church, you will understand how it works. This shadow nation of Israel is going to be a parallel with the kingdom of heaven. It's going to be a parallel with the body of Christ. And so what we are going to experience is going to, of course, be of the same pattern, but our way in which we carry it out is not in territory. It's not just on the territory of the land of Canaan, the land of promise known as Israel, but it is actually going to be in the hearts and lives of something known as the body of Christ, the church. And so as a result, and that's what this whole series has been, and so I'm going to sort of try and tie it together there, but my point isn't to try and fit it into a series. It actually could be a standalone message. 
And in this series, multiple times, I gave a message called Removing Old Sandals. And in that, I got up on the stage and I removed my shoes. Because I was talking about in the transition that you see from Moses uh, into where he is called out of the wilderness into the rescue position of the deliverer to take his people out of the land of Egypt, uh, you're going to see a burning bush and a removal of sandals, a sacred territory. But I could, uh, what I was likening it to is it's a transition season. Yes, it's holy ground, and that's a really good reason to remove your sandals. However, the sandals seems to be a, a significant statement. And so, because this is what carries you somewhere. This is a symbol of something. And when the 40 years end and the generation that didn't believe is wiped out in the wilderness and Joshua's generation is now ready to cross the Jordan into the land of promise, he crosses the Jordan. First thing he does is runs into the angel of the Lord and he's on holy ground again. And what does he do? He removes his sandals. Well, what's significant about those sandals? Those sandals hadn't worn out for 40 years. And so these are the same sandals that this, I mean, sandals are a pretty significant thing when these are the very thing God's saying will not wear out, and they haven't. So jo Joshua has been wearing these same sandals for a long time. So the way I liken it to is you, you remove the old and you start a new season. And we are in a transition season in the body of Christ. We cannot do what we've been doing. We cannot expect that the way church has been functioning in America is going to do what is needed for right now. If we don't put on God's new sandals, if we don't head into this territory with a new power and a new strength, uh, excuse me, but this church thing isn't going to remain much longer. God is the author and finisher of all of this. And so if we allow him to lead us in this time, he will show us exactly how to do this to preserve the integrity of what we represent and to carry forth the power of the message of the gospel into this next generation. Fearlessness is not a part of the Christian's diet. We have nothing to do with it. Right now is our hour to thrive as the church. And I just want us to remind, I just want to remind all of us of that as we begin this message. The plot twist. So there's a few things I want us to remember as we begin. First of all, when you are absorb data the way the enemy wants you to absorb data it disturbs you at a great level and it strips you of certain qualities that are very very christ-like one of them would be rejoicing for instance your joy and your rejoicing seems to immediately evaporate if you were to focus on the devil's news Okay, if there was a news source in heaven, which some of you have been really wishing that there was a news source that was just the heavenly news source. <laughs> Give me some perspective other than this, right? But if there was a heavenly news source, it would be very different in its nature of what it covered and what it emphasized. It wouldn't emphasize just the decay and the problems and the, uh, the lies and the deceit. It wouldn't do the same things. It would emphasize the working of God in the hearts and minds of people it would do something completely different. And so in God's kingdom, there's something known as rejoicing. There's something known as praying without ceasing. There's something known as giving thanks in all things. You see, when you are outraged and when you are disturbed in your mind, your psychology is going to go in a different direction than God wants it to. And so I just want us to remember this as we kick into gear here. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always, and it doesn't say except for the week 
of November, uh, you know, what, 1st through uh, 8th, 2020 in America. It doesn't say that. I do not see that in the text. It says rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. What happens in a time like this is you go into a certain meditation mode, which can oftentimes eclipse prayer. There is a great gift that is involved in what is taking place in North America right now, and that is it can move. It can. It doesn't, it doesn't always do it, but it can move the church to a prayer position very effectively. It's, it's a gift. This is what we've been praying for. We've been praying for revival of the church, but by the way, this is what we need. We need this week to do exactly that. And then listen, listen to this one. In everything, which includes a lot of things, by the way, guys, give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So some of you are like, God, what is your will? Well, I just read it to you. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in everything. All right, so what are we supposed to be doing right now? We're supposed to be rejoicing, we're supposed to be praying, and we're supposed to be giving thanks. So let's just remember that. The devil doesn't define our attitude. Jesus does. Understanding the battle. Who is it against? There's another bait in the midst of this, and that is to get rather crotchety and upset with people. I know, the bait is just sitting in front of us, guys. And I could just say, hey, is there anyone that you've gotten mad at this last week? And I have a hunch there's a list that we could create here that would be rather long. It's a bait because our battle is actually different than that. Our battle isn't against people. So let me just remind us of who our battle is against. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. It's not what my message is on. I just want to remind us of who we are up against. We are up against spiritual powers that, by the way, are defeated. And so we need to remember who we are as the church of Jesus Christ and that we have something far more powerful than a vote and legal action. We have the power of faith and prayer and obedience. And when we function in agreement with the kingdom of heaven, the world changes. When God is describing how a nation that is unhealthy becomes healthy, you're going to notice that it has nothing to do with ballots and legal action. It has to do with a people who are called by his name, humbling themselves, praying and seeking his face, and turning from evil, removing wickedness from their midst. And when his people does this, he brings wholeness back. This is a spiritual thing, first and foremost. The ancient operations of darkness. So, I've said this quite a few times over the past months as I've been going through a series. I went through a series called The Spiritual Biography of a Nation. It's actually about halfway done. But then I steered it in the direction of this series that I'm in, The Shadow Nation Rises. But they all sort of are covering the same thing. You're dealing with the ancient formation of nations and how a nation is formed, how a nation is kept, how a nation is maintained, and how a nation falls to pieces. You could study it all. I mean, through the Bible, you're going to see all of that. And in this process, like in our country, here in America, there are some ancient 
powers that are used to and very familiar to this territory because they ruled over it for centuries, generations. It's lawlessness, fear, and deception. If you study early American history before uh, Christianity encroached upon these shores, before the light shone here, it was the darkest place on earth. And the Europeans, when they began to hear the stories, had never heard of such evil as was described here in this country. This territory that we are now on, this is where it roosted. And you can hear stories of the Iroquois, for instance, that the greatest pleasure source, could you imagine, it's like, what do you want to do on a Friday night? The greatest pleasure source the Iroquois had was to hear the screams of the people they were torturing. Okay, now that is an unhealthy culture. This is what used to rule in this territory, and it wants its territory back. Lawlessness. You study early American history, that's what we had. Lawlessness. Fear. Imagine laying in bed at night or in your teepee at night knowing that the Iroquois are hunting for a nice Friday night fun fest. They're just looking for someone to torture. (laughs) Could you imagine trying to sleep at night with such a notion that just right over the hill you have an Iroquois pack that was sighted? Okay, so this is disturbing. It leads to a fearful existence, deception. Well, when the lights go out and darkness reigns, there's nothing but deception. The whole thing is a sham. The whole thing is a lie because there is no truth. So I'm going to go through and I'm going to walk through this pattern very quickly. I'm not actually going to go through the stories in depth. I'm going to give you a survey, sort of an overall survey of the stories. I'm going to go through seven hand-picked stories. There's actually so many more than this. But I'm going to go through seven hand-picked stories just to remind us of a pattern. The people of God are going to face an impossibility. The odds are totally stacked against it. There's nothing that man can do. Oh, no. And over and over, you're going to see this pattern happen. Impossibility. Then you're going to see in the midst of that impossibility, a stand of faith, a defiance of someone who is going to believe God even in the midst of the impossibility. And then what's going to happen? You're going to see the plot line as it's going along suddenly have a twist that comes to it And God is going to achieve something that no man could ever achieve. What? Whoa, how did did that work? Well, it was God. You see, this isn't something man can manufacture, that man can author. This is something that happens supernaturally. And what I want to remind us as the church about right now is our hope is not in men. Our hope is not in legal systems. Our hope needs to be in God. As always, I mean, that shouldn't change, it shouldn't alter, we shouldn't put our hope here just for a season and then transfer it back to God. It's always in God. The secret right now to this nation actually is not what you think it is. Now, I'm not saying God won't work through that, but even the workings of men have to have the blessing of God to truly succeed, especially when they're standing against the powers of hell, which I don't know if I said that clear enough, We are dealing with a very hellish maneuver against this country. It is not sponsored by God. It is something that is sponsored by hell, and it wants to destroy the light that this nation has shown for generations. This is the factory. This nation that we're in is the factory of a greater missionary program that has ever existed in all of history, right here. Well, I don't blame the devil. If he was going to pick a place to turn the lights out, this would be a good place to start. So, as the church, I say, let's keep the lights on. 
So seven handpicked stories, miracles in the impossible straits. So I'm going to start with one of my favorites, uh, backed up to the Red Sea. Everything about this story could really frustrate you if you're in the story. Because first of all, you've been a slave for quite a few generations, right? Now God is going to bring in a deliverer. That deliverer is really going to get under your skin at times. And he's going to uh, do things and Pharaoh's going to get even more upset. And now we even have greater problems thanks to this delivery method of God. It's like, God, couldn't you just come in and obliterate our enemies? Instead, God is going to bring about a deliverance, but he's going to do it in a way that's also going to show the nature of the people he's delivering. God is not against doing things his way, in his timing, so that he gets multiple benefits from it. He doesn't just deliver his people and quash the Egyptian empire that's standing against him, but he also is going to expose the sin of his people. What's going to happen right after the sin of his people are going to be exposed? He's going to give the Ten Commandments. <laughs> oh, perfect timing. He is going to show them what sin is. He is instructing his people. The beginnings of this nation is going to be an instruction in sin and righteousness. So I don't think it should shock any of us that right now we're going through a process that is going to expose the sin of the church. We think it's just exposing the sin of sinful men, but that's pretty easy to see. I mean, we, we all knew that anyways. However, we just couldn't believe that they would be that brazen and forthright in public. We knew that they were sinful, but whoa. But what God wants to deal with is us. We just don't see that as part of the plot line. We're like, whoa, but there's a twist right there. It's like, actually, this is for your benefit. We're like, how is this for our benefit? <laughs> They're freed, finally. Pharaoh lets them go. Oh, we finally have a breakthrough. They go on a three days, three days journey, and Pharaoh gets stirred back up. It's like, oh, I thought we dealt with that. And they're backed up to a Red Sea. Now, this is a very bad situation, okay? Mountains on both sides, Red Sea on the other, and they have a whole nation. They have no weapons, and they're in a really difficult situation because the most powerful military force in the world is coming against them. Okay, I don't know how many of you would choose this in your plot to say, this is what I would ask for, God. Could you deliver us from Egypt only to back us up to the Red Sea? We're backed up to the Red Sea right now as the church. We don't have any capacity in our own ability in this nation as the church to push. Who are we calling out to? Who is our advocate for the church to keep gathering, for the church to keep speaking in this nation? Who is our advocate? You name them. We're struggling right now to have a clear course of action, right? We do have an advocate. We just need to remember that our advocate is heavenly. Our victor is very real, and he sits enthroned on high. We need to be reminded of this. This is what we need. So let's just go through a few stories. I want to give, and I've oftentimes done this in the past, this quote from Josephus on this. Not because Josephus is scripture. It's a fascinating perspective that gives a greater understanding of the situation at the Red Sea. So Flavius Josephus, who lived in the time of Christ, by the way, and he wasn't even a believer, okay? So he's just giving his histories of the Jews, the verbal histories of the Jews. But Moses, though the multitude looked fiercely at him, did not, however, give over the care of them, but despised all dangers. I love that statement. Out of his trust in God, he said, it is no better than madness at this time to despair in the providence of God. So he's backed up to a Red Sea. Mountains on both sides, the most powerful military force coming against him. He despises the dangers. Don't you like that? 
I mean, what are you doing right now as you're backed up to the Red Sea? Are you despising the dangers? And then look at his, lo his logic is amazing. It is no better than madness at this time to despair in the providence of God. If God has led us this far, why would he just dump us here? Okay, God's in control, people. Don't you know that? That's what he's saying, too. They're picking up stones to stone him. So he's going to make a prayer. Now, this isn't in the Bible. This is a Josephus rendition, like his historical enunciation of the prayer that Moses prays. Okay, so again, I'm not saying this is scripture. I'm saying this is just very interesting. Listen to this prayer. Thou art not ignorant, O Lord, that it is beyond human strength and human contrivance to avoid the difficulties we are now under. But it must be thy work altogether to procure deliverance to this army, which has left Egypt at thy appointment. We despair of any other assistance or contrivance and have recourse only to that hope we have in thee. And if there be any method that can promise us an escape by thy providence, we look up to thee for it. And let it come quickly. You ever had that thought? Uh, and by the way, while I'm praying, let it come quickly. <laughs> and manifest thy power to us. And do thou raise up this people unto good courage and hope of deliverance who are deep sunk in a disconsolate state of mind. Does that sound like a few people you may know right now? We are in a helpless place, but still it is a place that thou possesses. Still the sea is thine. Listen to the reasoning here. The mountains also that enclose us are thine, so that these mountains will open themselves if thou commands them, and the sea also, if thou commands it, will become dry land. Nay, we might escape by a flight through the air if thou should determine we should have that way of salvation. Is this the way you're reasoning right now? You're backed up to a Red Sea? What's the plot line of history? God doesn't mind bringing us into impossible straits. But when we get to the impossible straits, he says, where's the faith? Don't you know who's in control? What will God do for a people that believes him? Well, you do know what happens here, right? I mean, I, it would have been pretty cool if they all flew out of there. It would have been pretty cool if the mountains literally flattened and they, they walked out of there. But instead, option number three, the sea divides the sea divides. I know we take it for granted because, yeah, 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 I know the story. But that happened. God created a means and a way of deliverance in the middle of an impossibility. Fact. Historical fact. Biblical truth. This is who God is. This is how he works. Number two, King Asu Harris signs the murderous decree. Oh, no. Say it isn't so. Haman, that no good, filthy, rotten guy, oh, can you believe what he's done? He is conspiring to see the destruction of the Jews. And he even cons Asuherus into signing a legal decree that cannot be changed. Could you imagine what that would feel like to be a Jew in that situation? Talk about being backed up to the Red Sea. We have a really bad situation here. So in the midst of this bad situation, what we see is a stand of faith. Esther 4, 14, who knows whether you have come to this kingdom for such a time as this. Famous quote, yes, we've all heard it. Mordecai speaking to Esther. But what if that line was spoken to us right now? Who knows whether you have come to this place right now in America, in this circumstance, for such a time as this? Think about all the different people that God has positioned right now in this country. Even though they have no voice, even though you're not hearing 
anything that they may be saying, are you so certain that God isn't in control? That God hasn't made provision long before we arrived at this situation for his purposes to be accomplished? You know, I've said to God more than a few times, if this nation, if it's best for the church and for your truth in this world, for evil to take command of this nation, I will follow you through such a season and I will stand for your name in the midst of it. I've already made that that statement to God multiple times. Made it again multiple times this week. However, in the midst of it, I'm also looking at the plot line of history. And I have so many different remembrances that go through. And I think of if there be even 100 righteous people in Sodom, would you not spare it? What if there be 50? What if there be, I mean, you, you guys know that whole story. Would God spare it? And of course, there didn't seem to be a lot there. In this nation, there is still a kernel of righteousness. That I know. Even though we're not seeing it in the news and even though we're not interacting with it, the reason I know is because we gather here all the time from all over the earth. We see it. I know that there is the fear of God still in this nation. I know that there are praying saints still in this nation. Oh God, would you show mercy? Not because we have lived righteously as a nation, but because there is a kernel of righteousness still here. And would you please water that and grow that up right now to be a mighty tree in the midst of this decaying culture? But the reason I bring up Esther is because there's going to be a plot twist in this story. It's impossible. Haman has the upper hand. He's even giving the you know, sort of jubilant dance routine. He is so self-satisfied, so proud of himself, of what he's accomplished. He even goes out with such audacity and builds a gallows to hang Mordecai on it, his arch nemesis. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded, the king commanded by letter, that this wicked plot which Haman had devised against the Jews should return on his own head. And that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. The very device and instrument that is made to destroy the Jews becomes the destruction of Haman and his family. The very attack of, of Pharaoh against the helpless Jews is going to become his downfall. He is going to be swallowed up in the Red Sea. The plot twist. Who would have ever guessed that one? When you're looking at the flow of the story, you're not thinking that one. You're like, what are we going to do? God, how are you going to do this? God has a great sense of humor. And the whole idea of irony, I think God invented it. It's called providence. God is in control, and he loves to prove it. Number three, Saul sits fearfully under the pomegranate tree. Saul, 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 come on, buddy. You're in charge of this people. You're in charge of this nation. The Philistines, they can't even be numbered. They're like the sands of the seashore come against us, and we're like this piddly lot, and guess what? No one had weapons. In the whole country, no one had weapons, except for two. I mean, Saul and Jonathan had weapons. Okay, this is a bad situation, but Saul, we need to do something. We need to do something. He's sitting under a pomegranate tree. That's, that's my mental, it is true, that's what he was described at, but I'm sort of emphasizing the fact that that's not where you're supposed to be right now. 
So our leader is literally passive? Come on, what are you doing? Jonathan and his armor bearer, do you guys remember that story? Are going to rise up and sneak out of camp because he knows that Saul wouldn't have allowed him to do it. Two guys with one set of, of weapons are going to defy the enemy host. Now, it's interesting because what they are going to do is they're only going to kill 30 Philistines. I think some of us have the imagination that they killed the whole army, but they didn't. They took a stand of faith. They defied the evil one. And what happens next is an earthquake, and it destroys all the Philistines. How God did it, I'm not exactly sure, but what we see is an impossible situation. Then we see a daring stand of faith in the midst of it, and then we see the plot twist. We see the earthquake. So what I want to do is I want to read through Psalm 9 for us, and I'm also going to read through Psalm 10, but I just want you to take it in. I want you to recognize that this is these two psalms, both attributed to David, are going to be statements that are going to be God deal with wickedness. So you're going to recognize that there's a lot that David is going to say that you will resonate with. Psalm 9. A psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart and I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne judging righteously. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins. And you have uprooted the cities. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. Do you guys need me to read those statements again? These are facts. These are statements of fact in scripture. He has established his throne for judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Fact. He has not forsaken those who seek him. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made. So the nations are making a pit. Why? So that the afflicted, so that the oppressed, so that the weak and the vulnerable could fall in it. And yet, what is going to happen? The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made. In the net which they hid, why'd they hide a net? Well, they're trying to catch something. In the net that they, which they hid, their own foot has been caught. You guys seeing a similar pattern here? It's called the plot twist. That's what I'm referring to it as. Pharaoh is going to be caught in his own net. Haman is going to hang on his own gallows. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. In the work of his own hands, the wicked is snared. Hagion Selah. I know it's a little strange. It's like a harp string. Ding. And then consider that. Let's pause and be silent. Isn't that an interesting statement? It's like, all right, the harp. Ping. And then silence. Are you considering this? The enemy's foot will be caught in his own snare. Do you believe that? You see, this is how God works. 
We should not be surprised in such a situation, caught off guard. We are the church of Jesus Christ with the historic record of the word. We know how God works. We need to remember it now. Oops, I still have more there. The wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God, for the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. Let's pause right there and be silent and take it in. Uh, Number four, story number four. Two against a multitude. Great story, guys. Elisha and his servants, you guys remember, the Syrian army surrounds them. The Syrian king is mad because somehow Elisha always seems to know what he's up to. And he doesn't, he's not figuring in the fact that God is telling him. He figures there's some kind of spy or some, some kind of network that this guy has. So he's going to surround him and he's going to take out Elisha. So Elisha's in a bad situation, guys. It's an entire army against Elisha and his servant. Okay, and if you're doing the math on that, and if you're a betting person, you're not going to bet with Elisha and his servant. And yet Elisha is going to see something that even his servant doesn't see. Because his servant is panicking the way most of us probably would in such a circumstance. And Elisha is going to say, Lord, open my servant's eyes that he may see. What has he seen? He's seen that those that are with them are greater than those that are standing against them. He sees a mountain full of horses and chariots of fire all around. What are you seeing right now? You see, this is the story of history. In the next statement, Elisha is going to speak and that entire army is going to be blinded. Okay, same God. Yes, you may be surrounded. Yes, it may look like all the odds are against us. Praise God, we're finally getting to the good stuff now. Sometimes we have to be brought to our end so that God can work in us as well. There's some sin in us as the church today that needs to be uprooted and dealt with. What better way to have it be dealt with than to have us backed up to a Red Sea? To have the edict of Asuherus come? To have the Philistines surround us as the sands of the seashore and us have no weapons in hand? Or to have the Syrian army come against us and there's only two of us to stand against them. Do you see the mountain full of horses and chariots of fire all around? Psalm 10. So now I want to read another, uh, what is attributed to David. It doesn't declare it as a Davidic psalm. However, it seems to work perfectly with Psalm 9 and it has a voice of David in it. So we're going to start with that as a presumption. Psalm 10. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? You felt a little of that? Lately, it's like, hey, God, God, we've been praying a long time. This one gathering here, like we pray all the time. We've been praying a lot. Uh, God, hey, remember us? Why does the Lord stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. Oh boy, that's a prayer request right there. Let them be caught in the plots that they have devised. Remember that prayer, because after this message, I want us to actually be praying that together. 
For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. You ever felt that? His ways prosper at all times. It's like, excuse me, our ways, you, you tried to prosper in your ways as a Christian right now? It's like, okay, God, let's do this. It's like, well, opposition constantly. But the evil one, the wicked ones are actually prospering. It appears that way, doesn't it? I'm trying to find my, oh, he pros, his ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. Isn't that a funny statement? He says to himself, I will not be moved throughout all generations. I will not be in adversity. That's how the wicked talk. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. He, his eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate, which is also known as the helpless or the, uh, I forgot what the other term was. I'll, I'll get to it. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. There's that net again. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate, or the helpless, fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Listen to this prayer. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself, you will not require it. You have seen it, for you have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate, also known as the helpless, commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his, his land, O Lord. You have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their hearts. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. Story number five, the unbeatable giant. You guys remember that story? The unbeatable giant. This is a bad situation. We have a guy who's just, I mean, he's either nine to 12 feet tall, somewhere in there. He's a big dude, unbeatable, the champion of Gath. You've heard of Goliath, right? And he is mocking. It's every day he sort of takes a step forward. It's like, hey guys, who's going to fight me? And Saul, once again, is under his pomegranate tree, scared to death, and what's God going to do? He's going to have the ultimate plot twist. Someone who wasn't even part of the Israelite military is going to come bringing bread and cheese. But he is positioned for such an hour as this. And he says, is there not a cause? And you guys know the story, don't you? Impossible straits, defiant faith, plot twist. God is going to take down the champion of Gath. Number six, the massive Midianite army. You guys remember the story of Gideon? I mean, the story is so outlandish even. You have hundreds of thousands of Midianites. And when all of the fighting men of Israel gather together with their, you know, pitchforks, I mean, that's the way it feels. It's like they don't even have weapons. There's, what, 32,000 of them against multiple hundreds of thousands of Midianites? This is a bad situation to start with. And what's God going to do? He's going to pare it down. He's going to get them down to 300. That is an absurd story. Impossible straits, defiant faith. God wins. 
guys, I don't know if you're seeing a pattern, but this is the pattern of the kingdom of heaven. God doesn't mind backing us into impossible straits. He will do it on the individual level. I can't tell you how many times Leslie and I have been backed into situations where we have no solution but God. I can't tell you how many times as a ministry we've been backed into impossible circumstances where there is no possible solution but God intervening. And what has it done? It has built our faith. I am still standing here, aren't I? Big smile on my face. What have I witnessed in my life? I have witnessed the plot twist over and over and over again. Why would I forsake God now? The reason he trains us in faith is so that when the faith tests increase, we increase with them. God wins. And finally, number seven, surrounded by the Assyrians. Hezekiah backed into Jerusalem, the walled city of Jerusalem, surrounded by 185,000 Assyrians. The Assyrians haven't lost a battle in a hundred years. And there is nothing that Hezekiah has. He has nothing. He's even saying that to himself. I have no way of, of defending myself except for God. You must intervene. And God intervenes. He just sort of wipes out 185,000 Assyrians. That's literally what happens. Impossible situation, defiant faith, plot twist. Who would have ever seen that coming? I know the Assyrians didn't. Another plot twist, the most important one in history, by the way. Remember the plot to kill the Son of God? Isn't it funny that it's even called a plot? Yeah, it's a plot. But there was a good twist in this story. But let's set the stage, guys. We have a really bad situation here. Luke 22.3, then Satan entered Judas. Oh, no. Surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. Say it isn't so. One of his trusted ones, who's going to sit Next to him, even at the seat, it's in a seat of, well, friendship or honor. I don't remember which one it was. But it's like a close fellowship that he has with this guy. This guy's going to betray him? Satan enters in. No, no. Someone stop it. It gets worse, guys. Matthew 26, 15. Judas is talking. What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. What? God, do something. Come on, don't let this happen. You know that all of this is happening to prove that he is the son of God? You know that he actually needed to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver to fulfill the Old Testament? <laughs> all of this is actually doing the opposite of what you think. It's showcasing the grandeur of God as opposed to diminishing it. But when you're walking through it, it sure doesn't look good, does it? What? God, don't let this happen. Are you blind? Why aren't you intervening? Why aren't you doing something right now? you got one of your own that's actually talking with the priests and the elders and betraying you. It gets worse, guys. John 18, 12. Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Someone do something. That's the Son of God. That's our, all our hope rests in him. Uh Someone intervene. There's no one. What are you supposed to do? You got the Romans and you got the corrupt religious system all standing against us. What does a good Jew who believes in the Messiah do right now? I don't know what to do, people. And even the disciples fled. They didn't know what to do. They were backed up to a Red Sea. Uh, I don't know if you think it's gotten as bad as it's going to get, but it's going to get worse. Matthew 27, 17 and 20. When they had gathered together... Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release to you? Oh, good. They, they always release someone on the Passover so they can release Jesus. This makes total sense to us. Barabbas 
or Jesus who is called Christ? Well, there's no way the Jews are going to choose Barabbas. He's a notorious criminal. The chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Those nasty, rotten religious leaders, don't they realize what that, oh! They, they released Barabbas? They bound Jesus? They're gonna scourge him and crucify him? He's innocent! Matthew 27, 26, then Pilate released Barabbas to them. Oh, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Uh, God, we're still waiting for you to sort of intervene here. We're waiting for you to step up. Remember all those great stories in the Old Testament where, you know, we, we had the impossible situation and there was a defiant faith and then you did your thing. Here's what's interesting is he's doing his thing. We need to trust his way. This story, we're so used to it that we don't see it and we don't parallel our lives with it. We don't recognize that it's the same storyline over and over and over again. Our role is to have the defiant faith right now. It's God's role to twist the plot. It's God's role to part the Red Sea. It's God's role to blind the Assyrians. It's God's role to bring the earthquake. We can't do that, but we can believe. Matthew 27, 29. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. I don't know how well you guys walk through mockery when you see the enemy dancing and yelling, triumphing over righteousness and truth and stomping it under their feet. It's hard. It's hard to watch. I cannot think of anything more difficult to watch than this right here. This is as bad as it gets right here. The Son of God has come to this earth. God Almighty who is holy, 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 pure, 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 righteous, righteous, righteous. And why has he come? Not for his own pleasure. He has come so that he could set us free. And he is willfully giving himself. And he is exposing himself to such evil because he has a plot twist in this. Matthew 27, 30 through 31, then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. At what point were you expecting God to step in? Or did you miss the fact that God has stepped in? That's the whole story. See, God is frying fish that you oftentimes don't see. Just like I said, he's purifying a people at the same time he's doing what he's doing. And right now, I mean, most of us cannot stomach what is taking place in this story. We know it historically. Many of us struggle to get into the story and live it in the moment. But if we were living it in the moment, it's, I mean, to even say 10 times or 100 times worse than what we're facing right now in this country, it doesn't really measure on the same Richter scale. Completely different measurement. This is perfect righteousness being defiled. Matthew 27, 39, those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads. God, intervene. Do something. He is doing something. He is in control. Haman 
is going to hang on his own gallows. As Nathan has oftentimes said, that the gallows that Haman would have built would have been shaped like a cross. The enemy erects it, sticks the Son of God on it, and who's going to hang? Sin, death, the enemy's head is going to be crushed. How did that happen? God is twisting the plot. Even though you can't see it immediately, you have to stand believing that is your Savior. Covered in blood, looking weak, not speaking, naked. He doesn't look triumphant, guys. That is your triumphant King. Keep believing. Keep watching. Don't give up now. Matthew 27, 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He dies. How you doing right now? See, you said, that's my Messiah. Do you remember Hosanna? You have your palm branches and the Messiah has finally come. Imagine the jubilance after praying for so long to see a breakthrough, to see justice finally come to this earth. The Messiah has arrived. Only to see this. It looks like everything has turned backwards. Keep believing. Keep watching. Our God will not fail. So I figured this would be an appropriate word right now. We could, I could have said hagion and have a, a harp string. But this is to amplify the moment, Selah. He's died. I don't care how bad it gets. I don't really care what happens in the natural realm. I expect sin to behave as sin. I expect evil to behave as evil. But what I desire and I crave in this time is that the church, which is not evil, which is not wicked, behave as the church. That we humble ourselves. Humility is the access point to grace. We humble ourselves and we pray and seek his face. And we turn from all wickedness. And we will see the plot twist. Matthew 27, 50 through 50, 51 through 52, and then 54. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked. And the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. So even those that don't even fear God, suddenly there's a twist. Something is happening, people. Do you recognize God is in control the entire while? If his legs had been broken, like every other, like the two thieves on both sides, their legs were broken. It hastens the death. They come to him. The Roman soldier comes to him. He's going to break his legs and said, pauses. Sees that he's already dead and said, pierces his side. Jesus is dead. But it's prophesied about this Messiah that not a bone in his body would be broken and that he would be pierced. Who's in control? You tell me. A dead man? Is he actually in control? Yep. He's God. We're witnessing the power of God, the miracle of truth at work. Matthew 28, 1 through 8. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. Huh, a lot of earthquakes going on. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. 
His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow as the, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the woman, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he is risen. As he said, come see the place where the Lord lay and quickly go and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. Selah. He doesn't just rise from the dead, but he ascends into heaven. And he sits down at the right hand of majesty. All things placed beneath his feet. Selah. Pause. Little harp string. Hagion. Let's remember who is in control. We are the church of Jesus Christ and we believe. So this is what I said to Les. I, I was, we were praying together. I've been praying the same thing over and over and over again. God, steer our nation towards righteousness. I can't do it, but he can. Right now, it's steering sharply away from righteousness. God, steer it towards righteousness. So this, these are the three things I said. I don't remember how it came out, but it's been sort of going through my head over and over again. These are the three things we need right now. We need to maintain our faith, we know who is in control. We know what he has said. We know his ways, his manner, his pattern. The kingdom of heaven is like what? We know how the kingdom of heaven functions. How do we know? We have his word. He has given it to us. I have watched God deal with these types of things over and over and over again throughout my entire Christian life. Why would I think he is going to fall to pieces now? It is no better than madness to despair in the providence of God now. I know, we're backed up to a Red Sea. Yeah, perfect. God has Pharaoh right where he wants him. God has Haman right where he wants him. God has the Syrians right where he wants them. God has the Philistines right where he wants them. God has those that are laying snares and plots right where he wants them. God is in control. Faith and then fearlessness. We need to not allow fear to touch us in this time. If God is truly our refuge and our strength, the very present help in trouble, then we will not fear. Though the mountains be removed and the, though the earth be removed and the mountains crumble into the midst of the sea, we will not fear. That's a pretty extreme situation. Why? Because God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So do you believe the word? If you do, you are fearless. Third, follow. What is the secret to the Israelite nation? When they get ahead of God, when they presume upon God, God doesn't fight for them. But when they consult God and they follow God, he gave them a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And when they follow him, he leads them to victory every time. We need our faith intact. We need to be fearless. And we need to follow him. Not our own reasoning and rationale we don't hatch our own conspiracies. Let God deal with that stuff. But he leads us into his strategy. In the Greek, it's strategio. We follow him, his mind, so that we win 
in the end. He is the victor. We are the ones that get to share in the victory. But let's let him do what he does best. Father, steer this nation towards righteousness. Hang Haman on his own gallows. Only you can do this. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. I pray that you would nullify the operations of lawlessness, fear, and deception. And that you would establish your kingdom in this earth. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.